0: Up next in the Property Week calendar of events is this year's highly anticipated Resi 360, taking place on the 12th and 13th of September at the Royal Lancaster London Hotel, where senior Resi sector leaders build valuable industry connections, immerse in interactive debate, and come away inspired by a powerhouse lineup of over 50 expert speakers. Key topics in discussion on this year's agenda include market trends and macro influences, investment strategies, technology and innovation in property, sustainable homes, the future of BTR, placemaking and community engagement, and so much more, through a mix of interactive debates, keynotes, panel discussions, presentations, fireside chats, and 20 different roundtable discussions. Your Resi 360 ticket will also include an elegant evening dinner on day one, followed by the Resi Trailblazer Awards, showcasing the outstanding achievements and emerging talents within our industry. Don't miss out. Book your place today and be part of Resi 360, the future of UK housing.
1: Hello and welcome to today's propcast in conjunction with Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher from Montford, and I'm joined today by Mark Bourgeois, known to many for his previous role at Hammerson, known also to people across the northwest for being recently parachuted into Liverpool City Council as a special situations are to go and sort out some of the problems that Liverpool has had in recent years with a few alleged. Criminal activities taking place, and we'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. We're also going to talk about retail, about regeneration, and about Mark's love of drumming as well. But before we get on to that, Mark, great to see you. You're looking really good, looking really well. Tell us about what it's been like in Liverpool recently because people were quite shocked by many of those allegations around criminal activity, alleged offences around procurement, alleged offences around land buying and other things connected with that, that listeners
2: can read up on on the internet. But what was your role in going in to sort that out? Well, thanks, Andrew. And firstly, thank you for having me. Real pleasure to be on. So, yeah, let's talk about Liverpool. It was actually a, a conversation that I had with a recent guest of yours, Tom Reardon, that I think was linked to me ending up it's in. He's the boss Liverpool. of Leeds City Council. Great, great guy.
1: And there's a recent podcast that you should definitely check out if you've not heard it. So, Tom hooked you up with Liverpool. He sent you to
2: Liverpool. Uh, well, not quite that. He hooked me up with someone who hooked me up with Liverpool. But, nevertheless, my experience of leadership dealing with some pretty challenged corporate situations and some fairly knotty, complex urban development challenges, actually those were exactly the skill set that were needed in Liverpool. Now, Liverpool has been under special measures, which essentially means that government commissioners were appointed. Um, There was a commissioner for regeneration focused on the team where those alleged criminality took place, both um, the regen, property management and the planning teams. Actually, the special measures spread then more broadly into the council. But I was there as the interim strategic director for city development. And that essentially made me accountable for the property team the regeneration development team also planning and highways and transport the property team covered both the investment properties for liverpool city council as well as what's called the corporate landlord estate which is the estate they use for providing their own services so quite a wide-ranging yeah, remit yeah, quite a brief, brief. and a seat then at the corporate table alongside head of children's services head of neighborhoods chief exec etc so yeah. you know really good corporate piece The remit was very much to get in and firstly unblock some development scenarios which had got stuck. The governance that had rightly come in as a result of the alleged criminality and the processes introduced had meant that culturally people didn't necessarily have the confidence to progress with some of the things that I think council should be doing. There was also a corporate challenge around fixing a £72 million budget deficit, which is very much a whole corporate approach. And then there was essentially rebuilding the team bringing in and appointing permanent members of staff to give some permanent governance to the council rather than interim such as myself so a real wide-ranging brief that for me lasted about 10 months and in terms of liverpool's position now in the eyes of investors has
1: it been tainted can it recover because certainly my experience in this sector over the last 18 years liverpool In the early 2010s was a real beacon of investment among the core cities. One of my previous roles at the BPF Centre for Cities, I set up an all-party parliamentary group. We brought in Centre for Cities to help us with that. And Liverpool at the time were a big, big star, big rising star
2: in regeneration. One of the things I took away and very quickly appreciated when I was there, and it was quite a privilege for me and an indulgence actually to be living in a city and just focus on one city for that period of time. Came very clear, and to your point, Andrew, Liverpool is a fantastic city. There's a lot going on there. And as you say, during the noughties, it was the most productive core city amongst the core cities in the UK. That kind of went from the top of the table downwards during those times we've just described. Eurovision, I think, came at the right time in terms of a cultural catalyst. There's a lot going on in the city. It's more than just a party city. It's a big hub of gaming there. Sony have got a head office and there's a lot of kind of start-up coding businesses around the Baltic quarter. The knowledge quarter around the university, four universities, so quite a lot of life science, particularly around infectious disease and infectious disease research. And then down by Speak, a big pharma cluster. And Liverpool is part of then a wider city region. You know, there's a lot of innovation goes on there. I think it's a fantastic place to invest. And I hope in the last 10 months, you know, me along with a few of the other leadership there and actually the whole council have done their bit to turn the corner and present Liverpool as a place that is open for business and I'd encourage anyone to get up there have a look and speak to the team there and I think it's a great place to invest now.
1: And some of the problems that are alleged to have occurred in Liverpool essentially around corruption in public office are they prevalent in other cities do you think and we just haven't uncovered them yet is there stuff you think which will come out in other cities other councils over
2: the next few years? Look, I'm not really qualified to say. I mean, I think there's clearly an undercurrent of corruption in every city. To the extent that local authorities might be involved or tainted in that, I think is less likely.
1: People are looking now at a lot of incompetent officials in different councils that have borrowed loads of money from the Public Works Loan Board and have essentially put themselves up the spout by buying failing assets. There's a bit of a low in confidence across
2: the board at the minute, some yeah. would argue. I mean, that's clearly a different topic. To, yeah, it's a different topic, but but essentially we're talking just about the councils that aren't fit for purpose is the point. Let me just to the first point first. I think a good governance, the right balance of governance, entrepreneurship. Not taking good, bright good is a good start. <laughs> <laughs> a good private, public, levels of collaboration, I think means most local authorities can work well in core cities, notwithstanding what might be going on. Yeah, that's and, right, and this city. was
1: what... Tom Reardon was talking about, the lead city boss a few weeks ago. That was exactly the point
2: he made, right, in terms of public-private collaboration. Yeah, absolutely essential. Look, I think then towards some of those loans that were taken out, some of the investments, this was local authorities looking to be entrepreneurial, looking to try and supplement their income by buying assets with income that clearly yielded well above the interest rate they were borrowing at.
1: Well, because the interest rates were
2: zero, so they could have literally done anything and still made a profit at the time. Indeed. Clearly, the shift in values on some of these assets, particularly retail ones, has left a few beached and clearly well-publicised just recently in Woking being a case in point. But there's many, many throughout local But that's varieties. the thing. It's
1: more the fact that they were buying relatively poor-performing assets or things they weren't really qualified to understand or manage. Yeah, I think and that's right. Anybody when a, when... can buy shares in a company like Carnival Cruises at the bottom of the market and get a 15% yield because the cost's so little,
2: but it doesn't yeah. make it a good investment. No, I think that's right. But look, I think, Andrew, it's easy, and I don't want to fall in the trap of bashing local authorities. There's some fantastic, really smart officers at all levels in local authorities. It's done for absolutely the right reasons. The purposeful nature of the role is enormous. The complexity and intricacy of some of the challenges they face and the resources they have with which to do them are extremely challenging. So I think one thing I've learned amongst many things in Liverpool is a huge amount of respect for those people who dedicate their careers to public service and trying to do the best for their communities and deliver good outcomes for the people in their constituents.
1: No, it's a good point. And I think we should probably have on this podcast more people from the public sector which is why we had Tom Reardon on a few weeks ago and we're going to be looking to speak to people from other cities but anybody listening to this, please send this podcast on to any colleagues you know in the public sector and if you've got any
2: suggestions of guests, do come
1: forward because we'd love to try and do a mini-series focusing on some of those points. Yeah. It's a good point, Mark. And
2: I think it's no accident that when you look at Leeds, particularly you know, Tom Reardon and Martin Farringdon have been you know, essentially in partnership with GPZ and Head of Regen for 11, 12 years and I think that continuity and that level of governance enables them to be entrepreneurial and really attract and reputationally get invested in the right place. And we've seen great things in Leeds as a result.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we are obviously talking about shopping centres or alluding to that with some of the assets that councils have bought. You know a thing or two about shopping centres, Mark. You've worked in this space for a you know, quarter of a century, pretty much. And you're best known for being MD for UK and Ireland at Hammerson, which has had a few special situations over the last few years. How do you reflect on that time now, and tell us about some of those experiences through those years because there would have been some quite taut moments, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, well, look, Hammerson is and was a great business. It built a fantastic operating platform that absolutely specialized in these complex. Urban retail and leisure led estates, some of the best real estate, best retail real estate in the UK and Ireland, and indeed in France through the French business, as not to mention Bista Village. So, some superb experience. Um, clearly, in latter years, in my last 12 months there, working with Rita Rose and the new management team, mm. very much focused on consolidating the operation, making it more efficient. And the team, I think, have done and are doing a really good job. Clearly, challenges remain. I think uh, my sense is that rents in the best locations have stabilised. They have been rebased. What we've learned in lockdown is that good retail space will always continue to be relevant, whether it's in a city centre where clearly the out-of-town space has been particularly strong. And I think that means these are very investable assets, which give the right type of characteristics for investors and indeed a lot of people tipping retail to be one of the best performers. Huge challenges those to remain on valuation. And I think that when you think about well, where current interest rates are, and then the nature of the income coming out of these retail centres now, it's all short term. These are operating businesses.
1: Hang on, let's pick up on two things. So I'll come back to valuations in a second because I think that's its own separate conversation. But I think the nature of income being short term. It's an interesting point, but we were discussing this in an event a few weeks back. We at Monford recently published a report around operational real estate. We did that with McFarlane's, the law firm. It's a great report. You should just search operational real estate McFarlane's online to find a copy of it. But what was interesting at that event, there was debate around conventional leases, and there was an exec there, I won't name the firm, but he would worked extensively in Asia, and was saying, look, out in most Asian markets, retailers are very happy to share information, and often they'd be in a situation where they'd have a UK asset and the occupier, the retail occupier, so we're not going to give you the information. They turn around and go, well, we've got it from your partners in Beijing. And the point being that the nature of long-term leases seems by many to be a bit of an English disease that has held back the sector and and this thinking of everything being short-term is why a lot of retail centres haven't necessarily evolved in the way they might.
2: I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, that comment and that observation became very apparent between 2018 and 2020 as flexibility became more important for operators and the type of operator from a landlord's perspective, who you chose really depended on, the sustainability of their business within your space, rather than just who could pay the most rent. Yeah, and I think that short-term nature then because became...
1: anyone can sign a ten-year lease, but if the company runs a CVA or a... which they all did, which they all did, so <laughs> I mean, you had even had Pret A Manger walking away from leases mid-pandemic, and Pret was the sort of golden covenant, right?
2: Yeah, indeed. I mean, it it hugely undermined the whole principle of long leases. Back to the original point, therefore, that shopping centres are now based upon short-term income. They're essentially operating businesses. And I think a more traditional business multiplier is probably the more effective way of valuing a business rather than any form of yield that might rely on continuity of income. And I think only when you've established two, three, four years of very solid income with some income growth can you then start to tighten and increase that multiplier.
1: The other grenade I often throw at people is the valuation system itself, which obviously by definition is backwards looking. We all learn through business what your accountant will or won't tell you. And we've all got experience of finding out after the fact that you should have done X, Y, and Z. And if you'd done A, B, and C, you'd have saved loads of money. And the accountant goes, well, if you'd asked me that question, I'd have told you the answer. And it it seems that the valuation system is much the same. And I would wager that many people think the valuation system is largely to blame for some of the problems that we have at the minute in terms of not properly attributing value to
2: the right things and overvaluing the wrong things. Mm. Well, again, let's just use major shopping centres as an example. You know, traditional reversionary yield valuations have been applied and, you know, those are now sitting somewhere 7-8% even for prime retail but you typical well, That's about right, with the risk free rate of 5%. Well, probably a possibly. bit too cheap. Well, well m- probably
1: a bit too expensive,
2: rather. Well, exactly. But I think if you're looking to acquire one of these things, you know, you'll be looking at a DCF, you'll have a target IRR, you'll probably make a bet on what you think you can sell it for in five, 10 years' time, and you'll work back and you'll put an entry price, which probably is less than the current value, hence the discount you're seeing with retail within some of the REITs.
1: Yeah, but I think the problem with a lot of the stuff that sits inside the REIT structures is that it's quite hopscotch. You have prime assets in some areas, but then you've got big assets in others that are going to have a massive capex bill against them over the next five years. They're quite large and unwieldy, and it's very difficult as you know, I mean, tell me what you think, Mark, but it's very difficult if you've got a big shopping centre like Trafford. I mean, Trafford's a bad example because I think it's a very, very good performing yeah, it's one asset. Of the strongest performers. So let's leave Trafford aside. But if you take something more regional or something more local like the Exchange in Ilford or, or even a big, big place, re that around independence and around other non-retail uses, it's very difficult. It's a very costly exercise, and
2: in many cases, it won't work. Mm. Most shopping centres, institutionally-owned shopping centres, have been pretty well managed, by and large, and therefore the service charges have generally meant that there's no huge maintenance capex that comes up. The capex is about repurposing and how you repurpose them, reduce the amount of retail and find alternative uses. And that's where the viability gap comes in, particularly for those more you know, local mid-market shopping centres that have been so hard hit, most hard hit, particularly during COVID. Mm.
1: And has the planning system got any blame here, Mark Bourgeois, in terms of encouraging and allowing so many retail centres
2: to be built in the early part of this century? we obviously have too many. It's interesting, isn't it? I was reflecting on this whilst at UK Reef in Leeds this year. And essentially retail was regarded as the panacea for economic growth. Put a big shopping centre in the middle of your city or town and everything else will follow. That really was the wisdom and evidently now from who? Just Where did look that at that wisdom come from? Well, just look at the evidence of all those centres built, and I think talk to most chief execs and hear most of the press releases around the time of these things being built, and it was all about regeneration. The, the ego of counter bosses. Yeah, look, I think we all played a part in it, and as did the funders. The funders were queuing up to fund these things. The retailers were queuing up to take space. So, look, I think hindsight, rear-view mirror stuff, so all very well in these situations, but all the signals suggested this was absolutely the right thing to do at the time. Everyone's to blame. Oh, it's
1: a fair response. It's not an unfair response. I mean, let me ask you one other grenade while we're on this sort of point about building too many shopping centers. If you had been in charge of the Battersea Power Station with development, would you have done something a little more
2: interesting than... A bunch of crammed in luxury resi in a massive shopping centre. Actually right now I'm staying just next to the station so I'm seeing quite a lot of it and experiencing how it's operating. I think the conversion of that power station the investment that went into it I think is highly commendable again it's easy to knock. I suspect I wasn't involved but I suspect that the density of housing which as you come over Chelsea Bridge and you look left you think "Oh, there's a lot there. I suspect the density of housing was very much in response to an appraisal that said needs more housing to make this thing work and that's what we've ended up up with i think it's easy to criticize but i suspect that a less densified development probably wouldn't got off the ground because it probably wouldn't have ticked the box with the funders and the viability Hmm. but if that power station hadn't been
1: so associated with pink floyd would we have just dropped it and started again should we have done that?
2: <laughs> I don't know if I'd answer to that. I tell you what I did see when I was there. I'm gonna completely switch lanes here. The biodiversity there, they've done a great job. I saw a group of goldfinches as I was walking past the other day, which you don't often see in city centre. So hats off to the developers for providing a habitat for goldfinches, Andrew. That's what I'll leave you with. Now, let's let's move off Pink Floyd and move to wildlife.
1: Well, no, I mean <laughs> like, well, we can talk about wildlife because biodiversity net gain is something that all developers now have to do. I mean, this is why I love the fact that these podcasts are totally unscripted because <laughs> where would you ever find a podcast going from pink floyd and overdevelopment right over to goldfinches and biodiversity but that's where we're going listeners biodiversity net gain marbles right it's just another hurdle that developers have to now jump over and from your experience in development let's assume that everybody does want to do good because i think on the whole they do and this podcast is here to champion great development and have people like yourself on each week that are pushing the boundaries but to what degree is the industry going to have to reskill and upskill to be able to jump over these sorts of hurdles because it's a whole different kind of science isn't it
2: yeah huge and clearly there's a lot of thinking going into this area right now and it's a huge subject you know biodiversity net gain because and essentially what that means
1: just for anyone that's of a bit blinded by the jargon essentially in the plain english translation i'll always give on these things it's essentially rules that mean you have to create a positive impact on the biodiversity of a location through provision of vegetation support for wildlife etc etc and there's lots of technical things set out there we did have a podcast on this a few years ago with a chap from savills that's worth finding but going back to your point this is a
2: challenge isn't it in cities like liverpool leeds how you support it's a huge challenge interesting when you think about building road improvements and quite a few of the public realm initiatives that you know we undertook in liverpool during my time there you know involve planting trees you then have the challenge of maintaining those trees and the cost of maintaining those trees that's difficult um I think there's quite a lot of kind of high-profile but relatively low-impact initiatives. You often find, you know, a kind of bees on the roof or a nesting box for goldfinches, but they don't do nesting boxes. That's blue tits and Swifts, by the way. But uh, I think a personal view is that city centres aren't necessarily the place to really worry too much about excessive biodiversity as long as there's green spaces where people can enjoy live and breathe and there's plenty of them the wildlife will tend to gravitate outside those city centers Although well, I do love to see peregrine falcons and I think what Batsy did with falcon boxes I think was commendable and you look up in most cities you'll see a falcon circling around eating pigeons.
1: Also going to be a lot of vultures circling around the industry over the next (laughs) couple of years. Let's move on from Birds of Prey. A big focus for you, both at Hammerson, more recently in Liverpool, and more generally with the work you do, Mark, is around people and developing teams and helping companies be more agile. That's something I know you're very passionate about. What do you think the real estate sector
2: can learn from other industries, from other companies, about how to get more from their people? Yeah, it's a good question. As you say, part of forming Velament for me was a platform to offer a service to organisations to really help their people make places better. And I think real estate generally is a lot more self-aware. It's a lot more aware of its people and its diversity than it probably was, but still quite a way back. I think taking time out for contemporary team building. I'm looking at the moment at an area called Coactive Training Institute and something called Systematic Constellations, believe it or not, which is about thinking about how astronomy it could well be. But I think rather than thinking about the individual, think about the system and the team within which that individual operates, that system being the priority. And I think there's some really contemporary thinking that can be brought into real estate, particularly with the proliferation of platforms for delivery of great real estate. And it's not just about building it and collecting the rent. You need great people to really nurture these places. And having well-functioning teams working together is more important than ever. So I I think there's a lot that we can learn from other industries, um, creative industries. And I think particularly some of the big four accounts, the legal firms are all pretty good Mm. at this stuff. The Unilevers, et cetera, all are very, very progressive in how they develop their teams. Um, I think we can do more in real estate.
1: Do you think there's a step change now given the focus on operationalization, given the focus much more on platforms? And going back to my challenge on leasing, the fact that leasing model's moving from just being bond-like 20-year contract that says... We're going to put a rant up every year by RPI plus whatever to a much more ingrained focus on getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves and managing people directly, managing tenants directly and operating real estate
2: like you would do a, a hotel or a theme park. All of those things. I think whether it's retail, whether it's workspace, hotels, residential, PRS or student, all of those principles you say apply. And look, this is tough. Organisations are operating within dislocated markets, there's change and disruption... And the challenge on individuals' mental health when they are targeted and tasked and made accountable for deliverable in such a complex environment can be hard. And I'm not sure that we necessarily equip our people to deal with that uncertainty, to operate within a continuing changing environment. So yeah, I think the increased operating combined with the complexities in which people operate, I think mean that a focus on people will continue to be super important.
1: And in terms of the tech transformation, that we're seeing in front of us. How scary is that gonna be for many boards and many
2: CEOs, given everything else they've got to contend with right now? Well, I think tech should be a huge opportunity for boards and CEOs. Clearly, we're talking a lot about ChatGPT and how we manage information. I've got to say, ChatGPT has been my friend for the last 10 months. It turns out ChatGPT is pretty good at writing economic strategies and pretty good at editing cabinet papers and pretty good at writing reports and editing my otherwise typos and poor grammar. So I think a CEO or a board that properly educates and equips its people to use technology in the right way, I think will help differentiate that business. I also think there's in the way we can now share data around projects obvious stuff to someone who's using it but many many people don't I think that itself is indicative of a collaboration which enables people to work across teams and actually cross the boundaries of different organisations in the way we never used to be able to. So I think from a CEO's perspective, being aware of the opportunities and the power that tech can give to their organization, I think the better. I think the fear comes from those who perhaps aren't using it and pretending it's not there. It's coming fast.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something we had a great guest from Savills recently. We were talking about this a few episodes ago, talking about the impact of AI. And what he said quite astutely was that you're not necessarily going to be replaced by AI, but you might be replaced by someone that knows how to use it. And I think
2: that's going to be one of the interesting trends over the next few years. I think if I might interrupt that, for the consultants, really important as well. You know, I think many consultants for many years have charged fees on the back of churning out a lot of standard information that you kind of frankly as a client knew, and it's probably the only back 5% of the report with the interesting stuff and the opinion on it. I mean, literally, GPT now can produce that first 95% in literally five seconds. So it's gonna be all about what's in those last pages and the quality of the analysis, not the thickness of the report.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I think I've seen that myself over the years, building businesses and building my own business. And a lot of the work that we began doing at Blackstock before we sold to Montford last year, but a lot of the work we were doing, started doing six, seven years ago, where we'd be given something that had been produced by a big consultant, a big agency, and just asked for a review, and we'd go through it and think, actually, this analysis is a bit flawed. You should be doing that. And I think there is a feeling client-side now that they want more bespoke support, more bespoke advice, and that big commoditized processes are less likely to generate premium. But let's see. We can only hope. Just one other thing that I know you're very passionate about, Mark, is your charity work and your music. And we've been to gigs together over the years. We've talked about drumming and music many, many times over the years. Tell us about how you got into drumming and tell us about
2: the charitable gigs that you put together and produce. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It was a bit of a midlife crisis, actually, around 40 years old. I managed to prize a drum kit from a colleague whose son was chucking his out. And after, I think, 40 years previously of drumming on my hands to songs, I kind of realised that I actually could do it and I knew a few tunes. So, you know, since then I've had a great time with various bands and particularly down here in London with property industry bands and a hugely generous industry that's always very supportive, enjoys a night out and is very generous in contributing. So, you know, each year we've broadly done gigs for Land Aid, I've done Shelter for the Storm in North London. Most recently, last Thursday, we did a gig for Elifar. Every Life is for a Reason, the Elifar Foundation. It was a a great night the Water Acts in King's Cross. We've got a very varied band of eclectic property folk. We've got Lauren Presents from Ministry, James Cogovin of Lunsom michnell Laura Parker of GL Hearn and Ben Whittle of Dreams and Hamish Wilson of the Crown Estate. So a real eclectic group looking to do it again next year, going bigger and better. So any listeners here who'd like to have a band or even just as an individual would like to be part of a kind of open mic type night, then let me know. And uh, we're going to do the same again next year, probably same location, but they're always very good nights. And uh, we raised over £2,000 for Elifar last Thursday. Oh, and We're grateful for everyone who supported.
1: No, that sounds fantastic. Well, yeah, we'd obviously be up for supporting that ourselves as well. So great to hear that things like that are happening and great to have you on Mark it's been fantastic to chat and just before we go one final thought about the listed sector and the REITs where you've obviously spent a huge amount of time how are they going to overcome the current challenges they've got in terms of debt in terms of the ongoing and constant planning challenges we always hear about and this need to modernise and reshape
2: their businesses. Who are going to be the winners and losers? Yeah, I mean, clearly it's a broad question and I guess it depends on the stock invested, the sectors invested, the operating platforms and the level of debt on the balance sheet. My sense is that the retail REITs have broadly stabilized in income terms but yeah maybe some valuation pressures and it's going to be about continuing to delever through sales clearly those who heavily weighted in offices it's going to be about where those offices are what type i mean Evidently, the very best offices seem to be the ones thriving, but we did hear that in retail and there were big price readjustments, so that'll be interesting to see. Mm. And logistics clearly got quite hot and is coming off there. So look, I, I mean, it's a big question, isn't it, we spend a lot of time on it, but I think those with solid balance sheets, entrepreneurial teams, good operating platforms will thrive and certainly those who've got the firepower to jump on some of the distressed opportunities should position themselves well for growth. Mm.
1: People with crystal balls, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. (laughs) Mark Bourgeois, fantastic to see you. Thanks very much for coming on PropCast. As ever, you can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon. We produce these podcasts in conjunction with Property Week, and you can obviously stay tuned to propertyweek.com for all the latest news and events. I've been Andrew Teacher, Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Monford Communications, formerly Blackstock Consulting. Lovely to see you all. We'll see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.